if you don't live in a big city, you won't get murdered. That's a general assumption that we all make, whether or not we realize it. When you see a farmhouse of people murdered by a chainsaw-wielding Leatherface, for example, you suspend your disbelief for a few hours to watch, because, of course, it's fiction, and stuff like that never really happens in real life. Keep your head down, go through life normally, and don't make any enemies or be super rich. That way, you'll be safe. You'll be normal. This might be an idea in our mind, but it's not a reality in our lives. Big cities may hold more killers. Small towns may be less dangerous. That doesn't mean a thing, not really. When you roll the dice, all sides are in play. In the world, nobody is truly safe. Fall River, Massachusetts is a forgotten town in history. The story is one you'll hear often. There was a boom in the late 1800s with a population peak around 100,000 people. And then closures and fires, a new generation and a fading town. Our story is set around this time, when the town was doing well and Andrew Borden was doing better than most. His life started pretty rough in terms of money, but that was all changed by the time he had daughters. Properties, businesses, and assets made him the equivalent of a modern-day millionaire, all in Little Fall River. His two girls weren't even teenagers when their mom died. Lizzie was only three, Emma was twelve. Like most people back then, both of them attended a church and all of their lives were brought up in that environment. They even went on to teach Sunday school. They lived not too rich, definitely not poor, and their house was large, larger than most. Their father, Andrew, was a millionaire, I already said, worth around $8 million by today's standards. And yet, despite all of that, they weren't exactly rich. They didn't waste money, and they never lived in the rich people part of town, also known as the hill. When their mother died, both Lizzie and Emma had a bright future ahead of them, a well-paved road to carry them. Three years after his first wife's death, Andrew married again, this time to Abby Gray. She merged into their family well, at least from the side. Inside the household, things weren't so perfect. It's clear that Lizzie didn't approve of her stepmother. She thought, for obvious reasons, that Abby Gray was just after their dad's money. Was she right? Maybe. The trouble is, Abby Gray isn't alive to tell us, or to prove herself innocent. Nobody is. A murder case is never clear-cut, not if you're still hearing about it decades later. This one, of course, is no different. 
Multiple reports were all grilled in a court of law. The deal breaker for this particular case, it seems, is something you have probably guessed at. It all comes down to the relationship between Lizzie Borden and her stepmom, Abby. There were tensions from the start. As Lizzie grew up, once she suspected that her father was being used for money, those doubts grew louder and louder in her head. She shared these with her sister, no doubt, as they lived under the same roof and had the same arguments with their parents. But despite the younger one by 10 years, Lizzie is who we remember most today, for various reasons. As the folk rhyme goes, you may have heard of it, Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax, and when she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. August 4th, 1892 is the date we remember for these murders, but it all started before that, of course. It takes time for such an anger to build up to make one kill, and then kill again, striking out in such a furious, terrible manner. May is when the first conflict appears. Lizzie had built a place for pigeons in their barn, but Andrew took it upon himself to kill the birds. He said they were attracting too many children to the house. Lizzie said she wouldn't be eating dinner with her dad. Emma agreed, and so the sisters began to distance themselves from both parents. July is the next major event. That was when both sisters, not just Lizzie, had an argument with their parents and moved out. Now they weren't little kids now, they were grown women, and so for nearly a month they were able to sustain themselves on an extended vacation. Fifteen miles away in New Bedford. This was a peaceful time for everyone involved, but as soon as the sisters returned, so did the chaos, so did the arguments. They stayed in a boarding home for a few days before moving back to their old, fairly large childhood home. Their father didn't live there. He'd sold it to them years earlier for one dollar. He didn't need the money, or the house, but they sold it back to him for a profit of $130,000. No effort, just family connections and a rich father. If you haven't got the point by now, this was a loaded family. Their dad was giving them six figures for free, basically. But the Borden home was loaded with more than just money. As soon as the sisters got back into town and started staying with their father more, a sudden and severe illness swept over the household. This was only a few days before August 4th. Their maid was blamed for feeding them all bad meat, but Abby suspected poison. Her husband didn't think that was possible, and so the matter passed. But still, is it not strange that Abby immediately thought there was foul play involved, when she had no other clues to base it on other than her feelings. Poison, huh? Well, she had more than poison to watch out for. 
Abby died first. She was facing her killer, the forensic investigation said. She was struck once, which made her fall, and then 19 more times in the back of the head, defenseless, with a hatchet. All of this before 10 a.m., and already there's one dead body. Andrew wasn't quite so easy to get on his own. He had a business friend over the night before, and that man hadn't left until 9 in the morning. Andrew also left the house when his friend did, going for a morning walk that kept him away until around 10 o'clock. When he got back, the door was jammed. Their maid, of course, went to answer, and also she claims to have uttered a cuss word. And then, from behind her, she heard a giggle from the stairway. It's worth noting here that Abby was found dead upstairs. Her killer, then, would have been on the stairs. Once Andrew finally got inside the house, he took off his shoes and lay down on the couch. Lizzie told the maid to go in, out and go to a store sale. There was some department store having a sale for that day. The maid declined and went to take a nap instead. I guess that bad meat was still causing some illness. Quite a coincidence, it seems. What happened next is somewhat of a mystery. Lizzie claims that she was in the barn for half an hour getting something to fix that stubborn, stuck door. Witnesses from outside the home claim that she was in the barn for about five minutes tops. The nurse who came down around 11 o'clock, found Andrew dead on the couch, his eyeball split open, blood pooling on their nice cushions, and a dozen strikes to his head. She hadn't heard him scream because he'd been asleep when he was murdered. Lizzie, standing beside him, was screaming. The investigation and the trial came next. I'm sure it was a huge deal in the community. After all, things like this don't happen in Fall River, Massachusetts, especially not to the wealthy ones. Everybody was a suspect in the eyes of the police, from the maid, to the sister, to the other sister, to the business partner who had spent the night before, and even a son named William that doesn't appear anywhere else in the story. But all of them were narrowed down by various ways. Some of them had alibis, some of them had no motive. After a long investigation, aren't they always long? Everybody was narrowed down and eliminated until only Lizzie remained. She went to trial. Over a year after those murders, she was indicted and considered guilty for both crimes, placed into prison. Now, the next part may come as a shock to you, because her stay behind bars was not long at all. Only six months later, she was let go, innocent. This murderer, or this misunderstood woman, depending on whose side you believe, was normal again. She was free, and no one else was ever charged for the murders of her parents.
she moved in with her sister, and they lived happily ever after, right? They lived in the hill after that. It was the wealthy part of town, if you remember. Full of rich people and not-so-popular people, exactly as their father had been. Both sisters inherited insane amounts of money. Let me break it down. Forty years later, after they had not been working, they'd just been living on this money. Forty years later, they were still able to give out six figures various different directions in their wills. Their friends would get money, their cousins would get money, different organizations would get money. I can't imagine how comfortable their lives must have been financially, so that in their death they were still able to give out more money than most people in the town had. These sisters did not have a poor life, not in the slightest, but that doesn't mean it was an easy one. Because of all that money, there were rumors about plots and inside schemes, of course. As you know, murder trials don't mark the end of the investigation. There was still talk, there was still gossip, there were still people around town who thought they knew exactly what happened. Money has a way of corrupting people, and that comes through in every story that comes from this case. But maybe it wasn't just money. Maybe there was enough argument and enough tension between Lizzie and her parents that provoked her to anger and eventually to kill. Or maybe we're all wrong. The truth never really came out. There were lies, there was deceit, there was cover-ups. The maid who testified in court was said to have lied trying to protect Lizzie and maybe line her own pocket with some of that money. We never will know. Just over a decade after, the sisters had one last argument and never saw each other again. Almost ten years after their parents' death, they split up and never saw each other. Never spoke, never reminisced on old times. They went to live their lives separately, alone. Thirty-some years after that, they both died, only days apart. Liz is remembered in that nursery rhyme we said earlier. Her sister left in a much quieter manner. Whatever really happened in the walls of that house, it prompted somebody to kill. You can call it greed, you can call it lust, you can call it anything really. The fact remains that two people died that day. Not every story ends with a ghost. There's no hauntings that came out of this. There's no creepy conspiracy theories. Not every murder becomes a legend. Sometimes they only live on in nursery rhymes. They always leave behind a question and a warning. As I've said many times, we don't know who killed Andrew and Abby because it could have been anybody. It can still be anybody. Lizzie Borden took an axe, but anyone can.
Today's episode is a story that was brought to my attention by Teresa Jacobs, a great author friend of mine. I highly recommend you check out her work on Amazon, because as you can see, she knows her way around the creepy side of history. Her fiction is even scarier. Besides that major help from her, Fear was written and produced by me, David Coomer. Music was found online from a free music site called, as usual, Incompetech. Perfect song for the podcast, in my not-so-professional opinion. If you're wondering about where I got all this information from, you can head over to davidcoomer.com, where you'll find more information about the podcast, my research, and how you can help support me. If you haven't heard, I also write books, which are available on Amazon if you feel the need to read something and hold it in your hands. They're inexpensive, but thrilling, so I hope you enjoy. Please, if you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving a review on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you listen to it. It helps me, it helps all the other listeners, and maybe we can grow this little group of ours. Even if you didn't directly download it from the iTunes site or the Google Play, you can still review on there, and it'll help get the word out. If you have any questions, my email is davidcoomer7 at gmail.com which you can find on my website if you've already forgotten it. Seriously, go check out the site. There's tons of stuff over there and lots of other ways to keep you scared throughout the night. As we always say, leave your lights on.